and sisters. That is the topic we are going to be talking about this morning. Friendship in the Proverbs. Sorry, my iPad just told me that I have a minute delay to open it back up again. All right, here we go. So if you would, let's go to... Turn it down a little bit, it's a little loud. You go to Proverbs chapter 17. Before uh, we get into this, we have a little bit of backdrop. Um, with the Proverbs, when we read them, when we study them, when we teach them, uh, there are things we need to know going into them. And uh, John did a little bit of this, and I just want to reiterate some of it again, uh, because we're going to be looking at some Proverbs that um, we need to know this about. So, um, with the Proverbs, um, we need to understand that Proverbs are principles, not promises. Right? Proverbs are principles, not promises. These are guidelines, not guarantees for life. So the dog returns to his vomit is a principle that is true, but not all the time. And so this is not necessarily going to happen every single time. So we need to understand that when looking at the Proverbs, uh, to understand what they are. They're guidelines, not guarantees. And also, too, we need to understand that the Proverbs do provide wisdom for life, but yet, at the same time, they lack something. We still need wisdom to apply the Proverbs because life circumstances aren't just so black and white like Proverbs give us. So we even need to apply wisdom to apply the Proverbs. We get that? Understand? All right, cool. So, apply wisdom to the Proverbs, though the Proverbs are wisdom themselves. So, um, these also, too, are not just tips. Okay, This is not just like, Oh, yeah, that's a good tip. I'll, I'll, I'll try that out. That's, that's really interesting and helpful. I'll take that tip. Once you start to look at the Proverbs as tips for your life, as moral improvement, you begin to look at the Proverbs as a fortune cookie. And you think, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll try that out. That's not the way to look at God's Word. That's not a way to reverence Him or fear what He has said. Because the Proverbs are God's Word. Completely and fully. They are God's Word. They need support around them, which all of the Bible does. But they are God's Word, and it's not. This is not a fortune cookie we're reading this morning. This is life-changing, heart-transforming God's Word. Let it transform. Let it attack. Let it be aggressive to your heart this morning. Um, and also, too, this is, and this is kind of the structure of Proverbs as we're going to read this morning, is that when we look at the Proverbs, okay, what we see is um, you see the wise man or the righteous man. That's one big category that you constantly see of the Proverbs. And then the other category, which Greg talked about last week, was the foolish man. Okay, so you have the wise man and then you have the foolish man. That's a continual theme throughout the Proverbs. And when we look at the wise man, as I looked at the wise man, I always think, man, that's who I want to be. I want to be like the wise man. I'm like the wise man. This is, this is what I work for. This is who I become. I don't do that. I do this. I become wise. And yet the reality, the reality is completely opposite. See, a, 
the, as the dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. Who's that talking about? That's me. I'm the dog. I return to my vomit. I'm the fool. Brothers and sisters, we're the fools. That's us. We are the fools in the Proverbs. And that's why we come to them for help. But not only that, if, if there's this wise man that we're supposed to be like, and yet I'm stuck being this foolish guy, then how do I become this wise man? But I think there's a different question we have to ask before we ask how do I become this wise man, is who is this wise man? And from the rest of the interpretations of the Scriptures, we see that it's not Solomon. Right? Solomon wrote all this, and he was a pretty smart guy. First Kings 3.18 talks about how he receives this wisdom. God grants it to him, says he'll be, you'll be wiser, and no one on the earth will ever be as wise as you. You alone are this wise man that there's going to be no man like you. You have this knowledge and wisdom to life that is, um, is unique. And so, even too, Solomon lives out his life, and it's really, it, it's somewhat good. Like, he lives in wisdom, but it's not only until like a few chapters later in Kings where you get to uh, chapter 11, and it talks about his failures and how he couldn't um, fulfill the Proverbs. He couldn't continue in wisdom. It says that he, had, he clung, his heart clung to many foreign women who God told him not to. So who's the wise man? Who is the wise man? It's Jesus. Christ is the wise man in the Proverbs who fulfills every single one of them. Every commandment, every wise piece of advice of how to live out Christ did all of it. He is the completion of the law and the Proverbs. He is the better Solomon. So when we open our Bibles and come to Proverbs, we get to see that someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater is here. And it's Jesus. He's the wise man who walks out all of the Proverbs in wisdom. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. First Corinthians one thirty talks about how Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God. Christ is our wisdom. And so we need to see that uh, as we look through the Proverbs this morning. There is someone greater than Solomon here, and it is Jesus. And But not only that, there's one more point, is that Christ is the wisdom of God and the fulfillment of the Proverbs. And so we can see how... Christ walks those out, how he lives out those Proverbs perfectly, and how not to be like the fool. But at the same time, we still lack ability. We still lack the tangible legwork to walk this thing out. And so, that's the beauty of the New Testament, is that Christ not only shows us how to walk and live, but he empowers us to do it. Correct? He gives us his spirit so that we can walk in wisdom. He supplies the wisdom and he supplies the strength to walk in wisdom. So that's the pattern we're going to look at as we discuss friendship, all right? So that was the intro, so hang with me, all right? Here we go. Uh, Proverbs, um, as we discuss friendship here. So friendship is this topic, and there's a bunch of um, 
There's a bunch of good verses on friendship in here. We're only going to look at a few because, like, friendship, relationship, that is a broad topic. Like, you start thinking about different dynamics and different people and family members and wives and spouses and cousins and brothers and sisters and church family and on and on, friends at school, friends at work, friends that you know from friends. Like, there's so many different aspects and dynamics of relationships uh, that we see in life. And so for me to cover all of that this morning would be a headache for you and a headache for me and a long, long time. So we're going to keep it simple this morning with just a few uh, pieces of wisdom from the Proverbs on friendship. And so what we need to understand first is, um, um, is really uh, our brokenness in friendship. Is, um, the, the, the Proverbs actually say this in the beginning, this... Um, they get to the root of the matter right in the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so what that is talking about is that wisdom is the fruit of right relationship with God. All right? Wisdom is the fruit, wisdom is the outcome of a right relationship with God. Okay? And so you want wisdom cling to Christ, but we'll get to that later. Wisdom is the fruit of a relationship with God, and our problem is that as humans, we lack wisdom in our friendships because we have sabotaged our relationship with God. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and that's where Adam and Eve destroyed it all. They, we lack wisdom in our friendships because their relationship with God was destroyed, and we're in that same line of Adam. So while they were in the garden, they were walking perfectly with God in complete obedience and fellowship and joy. Like Eden is going to be, that's what the Bible's working towards, getting back to the new Eden. That's what New Jerusalem is. So Eden is like, it's heaven, it's perfect, right? And so they're in full joy with God, complete, satisfying relationship with Him. And they have a outward glory fixated on their God in the garden. Right? That's, there's this outward, oh my gosh, he's so amazing. We love him. We're satisfied in him. There's nothing better. And then the serpent comes along and deceives them, and they sin. And when they sin, they break relationship with God. And that outward focus that was continually looking upon him turned and, came, and became an inward focus on self. It became this, me, 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 I'm so good, look how awesome I am, I'm this, I'm that, I want this, provide this for me. Adam and Eve then became distorted in their relationship with each other, and then we see it trickle down into their kids, and their kids, Cain and Abel, kill each other. That's all an effect from the broken relationship with God that they had. And so their broken relationship with God produced this inward self-centeredness. They became pathetic navel-gazers, always thinking about self. And we see this even too in Adam's response to God, right? He doesn't take, he doesn't take it on himself to say, okay, yeah, this was my fault. No, no, no. When God says, what did you do? He puts the blame on Eve. He says, I didn't do this. This is her. This is her fault. God, you know I'm awesome. I wouldn't do that. I don't do that. He pushes the blame. Why? Because there's this self-centeredness in him. It's sick. It crept in and it is the manifestation of his brokenness 
And it's the manifestation of our brokenness. We're master artists at sly comments and backhanded compliments, speaking down on others to feel good about ourselves. We're so consumed at how awesome we are that we have this bent to constantly offend or annoy each other, speak bad upon each other, backstab, slander. Since the fall, we've become these type grade A professionals at destroying relationships and friendships and subpar amateurs at building them up. That's true, right? I mean, you see that. You can spend your whole life trying to build a relationship, build trust, build love, build peace amongst one another, and you do one wrong thing or say one bad thing about someone, and the whole thing is destroyed? Like, we're just really good at that. We're really good at that. It's very easy for us. And so, in friendship, the first thing we want to uh, look at is that we need God to help us with our friendships. We really do. Like, and I guess I never really thought about it before, is that I actually like really need God to help me be a good friend to other people. It's, I know that's like simple, but just let that resonate with you. You need God to help you be a good friend. You need God to help you be a good spouse or a good brother or sister. You need God to help you be a good parent. And this, uh, this inward brokenness, um, this self-centeredness, it, uh, it manifests itself in, a, in one specific way, and I want to I mention this. Um, it's, it's the sin of entitlement. It's the sin of owedness. It's the sin of, I had a hard life. I deserve this. I didn't get a fair shake. You owe me. God owes me. And I owe me. That's, that's that self-centeredness. It's a selfish mentality in 2008 that America is actually breeding. Like, we breed this in America. Every single day, public school systems, jobs at work, bosses, all, all those people disciple our minds and breed this type. We, like, it's just hand-fed to us that we are owed something. It's the soil that produces all these other sins in us. It's killing us uh, from the inside out. It's the type of selfishness is the root of all our brokenness. This is the foundation of marital strife. You owe me. You exist to give me what I need. This is where we lose good relationships with our kids. This is where we have let sin grow and let friendships die. But, is there hope in our broken relationships? Is there hope for us? And that is the good news. That is, the good news is that we do have hope. We do have instruction and um, a a Holy Spirit who's going to help us be the right friends that we need to be. So, um, we're going to look at Proverbs 17, verse, flip back, 17, verse 17. And so what Solomon is really getting at here, what we're going to see is the purpose of friendships. And so the verse says, 1717, a friend 
loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So here we have right the wise man. Here's the wise, loving, enduring friend. He's like a brother who sticks through thick and thin. And so when we read this, this is the type of friend that we want to be, correct? This is We want to be the brother who sticks out. We want to be the sister who is loyal. We want to be the ones who stick through this thick and thin. We um, want to love at all times. And it would be even wise for us as people to look around and see, okay, that person is loyal. I'm going to be friends with them. That person would stick it out with me. I'm going to be friends with them. That person will love at all times. I want to be friends with them. And so that's kind of where our mind goes. And we even see uh, a picture of this is in Job, right? When Job goes through all the tragedy of his, in his life in chapter 2, verse 11, it talks about his three friends, and I cannot pronounce their names, so I'm not going to try. But they come in, and they see the, the stuff that has happened to Job and how his life is broken and shaken upside down. And they come in and they say, let us go to him. Let us specifically make a time to go with him and show compassion to him. And that's the idea of sticking it out through thick and thin. That's what it means when it says a brother loves at all times, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Is Job's friends. They, they do that in the beginning. But, where do we find this type of friend as people? Like, like, think about it. A friend loves at all times. All times. Like, where do you find a friend like that? Where do you see a friend who loves you at all times, in all your weaknesses, who perseveres through your greatest trials with you? Like, like literally, when you become so depressed and angry at life's circumstances that you begin to cut yourself off from people, lock yourself in your room for days, weeks, months, and have no communication with people, who's going to love you then? Who is going to step in and say, I love you, brother? Who's going to do that? I mean, all times, all times. Who's going to be the person who is offended by a brother, who goes through a trial, and because they cut them off, who's going to come back and say, I don't care what you said to me. I don't care if you offended me. I'm here for you. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, it's not me. (laughs) And it's probably not the people around you. But again, this is where we see Jesus in the Proverbs. Christ loves at all times. Jesus will be there for you. He is our friend who loves at all times, and He is our brother who is born for adversity. Listen to Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps even for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In the Proverbs, this is where we see Jesus. Christ loves us at all times. In our weakness, in our trials. I love, this is the idea too in the Old Testament of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's this continual faithfulness. 
He doesn't stop. Listen to Jeremiah 31 verse 3. It says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You get that? That love and faithfulness, that steadfast love, that I don't give up, I don't give in, I'm not going anywhere. God never leaves us in our sin. He is the brother who is born for adversity. He is the friend who loves at all times. We have a Savior who bears with us in our pain and problems. We have a Savior who carries our burdens. We have a Savior who strengthens us and walks with us through our trials and tribulations. But that's not where it ends. Right? That's great. That is really good news. But that's not where it ends because now Jesus, He not only shows us how to be the right brother who will bear with us in our burdens, but He gives us His Spirit to walk out so that we can be the wise men who bear one another's burdens for each other. We can be the people who now, by the power of the Spirit, begin to walk with one another in our problems and in our brokenness. We become the brothers who are born for adversity. We become the friends who love at all times. As we walk in imitation of Jesus and by the power of His Spirit. And so I just want us to think about this. If that, if Christ loves us at all times, like, which He does, then what if, what if we were to see that and really dwell on it so much that it begins to change us and we think, oh my gosh, I see my brothers in sin. I see my sisters doing stuff that's wrong. Look at how this now has a change in effect on us. It no longer makes us judgmental to point out the speck in their own eye. But when we see that Christ loved us like this too, we then begin to think, oh my gosh, i got a plank in my own eye. Who would I be to tell my brother, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. That we would become like Christ in helping one another get out of our sin. It's not that we just brush it off and say, hey, you know what, just don't acknowledge their sin, they're fine. No, no, no. We get in, we dig deep, we get gritty and dirty with each other, and we say, hey, I know you're struggling with this, brother. I've struggled too. Let's get out of this. We need to get out of this. This is, this is true friendship. Christ bore our sin for us. And he bears our sin today. And He empowers us to help one another do this for each other. It's even shown too in Proverbs 17, verse 9, in the same chapter you see, if you look down, it says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And so do you seek love? Do you want to love God and neighbor as yourself? As Christ has commanded us, then cover an offense. And it's, I mean, the, the second part of the verse too, right there, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. That's the natural act that we do, right? That's just the, I don't even need to think about this. I'll, I'll slander someone easily. 
We so easily separate close friends because of our uh, speech. And so I just want to think about this, uh, just to back up for a second and think about this. If, right, so if we are those natural people who are, who are really busted up and uh, can't figure out our relationships, and but Jesus loves me at all times, no matter what, even in my failures and wickedness, then why do I have friends? Like, forget them. I got Jesus. I don't need them. I got Christ. He's the perfect one. He walked the whole thing out. He'll be with me all the time. He's the brother born for adversity. I don't need you. I got him. Like, doesn't that, doesn't that make you beg the question, if Christ is perfect, then why do I need them? Should I ditch my friends and just love Jesus? No. It's not uh, what the Proverbs are saying here. But I think it's actually kind of opposite. And the idea is that because Jesus is our friend who bears with us in adversity, it doesn't mean that I throw out all my insufficient, unloyal friends who are fickle and failing me. Because our friendship does not drain out our love. Our friendship with Jesus does not drain out our love for one another. Okay, That's the idea. Is our friendship with Jesus does not drain out our love for one another. It does the opposite. Our right relationship with God actually fuels and enriches and deepens our friendships with one another. It brings it to another level. It doesn't mean that we throw everyone out. It means that we dig deeper to find better friends in Christ who are grounded on the Gospel, on the same principles of the Bible, and we see eye to eye. And when we see eye to eye with one another, that's when we can actually rejoice with one another, like Romans says. That's when we can weep with one another. That's when we can become the friend that we need to be. And so, um, just a, a simple way of kind of illustrating this is that um, some of you know that, uh, well, me and John Masella are good friends, right? Me and John Masella. That's weird, right? Like, John Masella and me? That's not like a normal relationship. That's not a very normal relationship. So if, if Brantford Bible Chapel did not exist, if we were still in the world, like, our paths would have never, ever crossed. Ever. Like, there's no chance. Like, John in high school and me in high school, like, I would have been taught to knock the glasses off his face and step on them. And he would have been taught to ignore the jock that I am, the punk idiot that I am who just knocks him down all the time. Like, you see, there's just no relationship that would be normal there at all. But why are we friends? Because Christ. He's the one who enriches, he deepens, he fills our relationships with one another. It's not that we throw out relationships with one another. It's that we, we cling to them more because Christ has made it that way so that we can. Christ uses, he, he doesn't just come down and sit with you in a chair and just solve all your problems for you in a counseling session. No, he uses your husband. He uses your brother at church. He uses a sister at church. He uses your your, your, your real sister in life. He uses people to help, comfort, rejoice, be with one another. We, 
brothers and sisters, are the means in which God navigates to comfort us in our trials. You see that? We are the people, the church, the body. And this is how Paul talks in a lot of his letters when he's writing to the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, Romans, Timothy. He says, I long to be with you. I want to be with my brothers. I have tears rolling down my faces every time I think of you. And even too, when, when like brothers in the Lord, even when they backstab Paul and leave him for dead in 2 Timothy, Demas leaves him and goes to Thessalonica in love with the world. Alexander the coppersmith, look out for them. They're harmful to me now. All, everyone has deserted me. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. Everyone has deserted me. But Christ is with me. But yet, he doesn't throw out his friendships with those people because they failed him. He says, bring Timothy to me. John Mark is very useful to me. Even though he failed me in the past, he's very useful to me. I want to be with Timothy. He wants his presence. There's that friendship and bond that they're going to be able to encourage one another and stir each another on to get through their trial, through their pain, and to love Christ and glorify Christ in the midst of it. Brothers are born for adversity. And so, I would even say this too, is that Paul, he he longed to be with them, right? He wanted to be with them. And so, Sorry, I just lost my spot. And so here's the idea, is that if you and I want a better relationship with our spouse, you want a better relationship with your wife, or your husband, or your, your kids, or your friends, the pursuit is to seek Christ first. You've lost relationship with your, with your kids? Do everything you can to passionately pursue the person of Jesus. Become more like Him in your relationship. And in becoming more like Him, we can begin to bring back broken relationships in the past. We can reunite our problems and arguments that we've had Christ is the one who, um, who, uh, who really does this and uh, brings us back together and fulfills our relationships in the way they're supposed to be, by His grace. And so uh, the last proverb is this, is um, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. This is... Um, even continuing the thought of unity with brothers. In Proverbs 27:17, it says, uh, Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend, or the countenance of another. 
Right, and so Paul, or um, I'm sorry, Solomon is using the idea of that old um, iron smith type thing where you see them take the piece of iron that's dull, they put it in the hot uh, fire, and they take it out, and then they hit it, hammer it against another piece of iron, and the iron with the friction against the other iron and the heat makes that piece sharper, right? That's the, uh, that's the picture that he's using here as an illustration. So he takes a dull piece of iron and makes it sharp. And this is what Solomon is saying is the purpose of our friendships. It's so that it's not that we would just hang out together and talk about football or eat just guacamole and chips every day, but that we can actually sharpen each other to become more like Jesus. This is sanctification he's talking about. And this is the practical purpose of the church. One of the reasons, not the whole purpose of the church, but one of the main reasons of the church is to sharpen each other. And that's why Christ puts us together. We have been put in a local church existing together right here for the sake of sharpening one another. That we might sanctify one another and become more like Christ together. So the purpose of friendships is for sharpening. We point each other to Christ. And so this is like, this is huge in the New Testament. I just mentioned some of what Paul said with his friends and how he longed for them and loved them. And it was those friends who really sharpened Paul throughout his entire life. And vice versa, he sharpened Timothy. And so this is the the pattern that Christ was establishing when he was on the earth. And then we see it carried out and fulfilled in the book of Acts. Alright? So Christ, He says, love one another as I have loved you. And then you see in the book of Acts, especially this one, right? Acts 2.42. This is like, we quote this one all the time here. It says, listen to this church. This is the body, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed together had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. They're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the church, right? They're gathering together. They're sacrificing for one another. They're doing this whole thing. There's this one anotherness going on. They're bonded together because of Christ. And what you see, when people are bonded together by Christ, when they trust in the promises and submit to the wisdom of God, what happens is the people thrive. And in the book of Acts, this is a continual theme. This is just shown here really well in 242, but it's shown in chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, is that all the people were working together and there was not one single person in the church who was sidelined. Everyone was a player. Everyone was an impact player. No one is sidelined in here. We're all meant to do this thing together. And when we come under and we get wisdom from God on how to live like Jesus and how to do it, and then we come together and try to do this thing together, that's when we thrive. That's when we become the body that we're supposed to be. I love, um, I found this quote. It's from, uh, I, I don't fully know how to say his name, but it's from this dude, Artazides, right? And so Artazides was, 
He was one of uh, Caesar, I think it was uh, the name that had Caesar Hadrian, right? So the Caesar at the time in Rome, this is right around the early church time in the book of Acts. And this is kind of an outside resource. This isn't from the Bible, but there was, this is in history. So you got this guy who is a servant to Caesar. And Caesar hears about the church, the way, as they called it in the book of Acts. And he hears all of this stuff happening down in Israel and it's coming up into Turkey and it's coming over closer to Rome. And he's like, what is going on over there? And so what he does is he sends this guy, Artaxerxes, out and he says, go and give me a report of this thing called the way. Listen to what this says. This is the report that Artaxerxes comes back with and gives to Caesar about the way, the church. He says, listen carefully, he says, they love one another and he who gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that are poor and needy and they have no spare food, they fast for two to three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. That's awesome, right? That was the church in Acts. People who were committed in following Jesus out of a love for Him because He saved them. And when they came together, this is how they functioned. This is how they worked. Two to three days of fasting because your brother doesn't have food? That's radical. And so we are the body of Christ. And every single person in here has a particular purpose. Everyone. There's no one who doesn't. And so, even in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the body, right? And he's like, if you're a leg or an arm, so just think about that. Like, If you're supposed to be an arm, quote-unquote, in here, you have just as much purpose as the veins do. And even though the veins are unseen, they still have the same amount of purpose. Right, So, up here on the pulpit, downstairs in the kitchen. Up here on Wednesday nights, over there in Sunday school. Seen, unseen, doesn't matter. Everyone plays a role. Everyone has a part. And it all has purpose. This is how the body functions. So, Sunday school teachers, pump the gospel into those kids. Give them a foundation that they will stand on for the rest of their lives. Like women in the kitchen, keep doing what you're doing. We see you. And it's helpful. And it's important. Because like, listen, you don't clean those dishes, I'm going to get sick. Bacteria, right? Like we all just fall apart if one of the parts doesn't play its purpose. We need each other in these ways. And as silly as that is, as cleaning a dish... Do it for the glory of God, knowing that Christ sees you, and it doesn't matter if man sees you. I was, I was even trying to look up just kind of a disgusting one for this specific illustration, but um, the, the hands, right? We have hands, and hands are like some of the most seen things on a body. Like You use them every day, they're always um, working, doing things, people see them, and so The hand, get this, the hand is just as important as the ear producing wax. Just as important. 
like that the ear produces a wax, a gross, nasty, no one wants to talk about yellow wax that comes out of your ear so that particles and other things don't get inside to create infection, right? And that's just as big as a purpose as the hands play. Just as big. And so listen, there are women, there are women in the other room wiping your kids' butts just so that you can come in here and listen to an undistracted message in God's Word. That's awesome. It's disgusting, but it's awesome, right? And so we all have these parts to play. Whether it's seen or unseen, we are the body of Christ and we need to work together. So, um, really quick, uh, how do we become these loyal friends? How do we become others-focused? How do we become a church who flourishes in our relationships and loves one another like Christ has loved us? Uh, we need to constantly re-gospel ourselves. We need to re-gospel ourselves because this is the antidote for self-centeredness. This is the antidote for this owedness, self-entitlement. You owe me this. I should get this. We need to remind that though Christ owed us nothing, He freely gave us all things in His Son. And when we remember that the Gospel is what bought us our salvation, when we were broke, we will imitate Christ and give to others in need. When we see that Christ bore our burdens on the cross and carries them for us today, we will be the type of people who intentionally, intentionally, intentionally look to help others in need around us. We love like Christ loved the church, and will bear on, we will bear one another's burdens. And we do it because He first loved us. Not because I'm, I'm supposed to or because I can do it myself. We do it because He first loved us. Let's pray. God, thank You for, for Your wisdom. Even as Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments? How inscrutable are your ways? And who is there that can counsel you? God, there's no one. You alone are wise. And so we come to you because we need wisdom to live in this life. God, without wisdom, we can't walk like Jesus did. Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, empower us to become more like the church in Acts? Would you dwell with us and help us to together enjoy you and live for you and sacrifice for one another? Lord, we need you. And so we ask that you'd, you would uh, come and do this work within us and that we would be ready to do it. We'd be ready to obey you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.